Hello, and I want to welcome you to the ABI podcast con uh, related to the Consumer Bankruptcy Commission Report. My name's Hank Hildebrand. I'm a Chapter 13 trustee. I'm located in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had the privilege of serving on the Consumer Bankruptcy Commission. I want to start today's podcast by saying that I hope each of you and your families and your colleagues uh, are safe and remain healthy and um, avoid that uh, close contact that gets us all in trouble. Uh, and I want to thank the ABI for putting this together because it does give us an opportunity to discuss issues that were raised by the commission. A little history. Uh, last year, the ABI Commission on Consumer Bankruptcy released its final report of a series of recommendations aimed at improving uh, a number of things in consumer bankruptcy access to the system, making it work better, making it um, uh, do what people thought it was supposed to do. And today we're, we're going to be talking about a couple of the recommendations that have been made concerning the Chapter 13 debt limits and concerning the creation of an emergency fund or uh, reserve fund in Chapter 13 plans. Uh, the ABI Commission was charged by the ABI Board of Directors to uh, to do uh, make the recommendations without seeking to revamp or restructure the bankruptcy code. So we were using a framework that existed and just seeing how that framework, within the framework, we could improve bankruptcy. Um, it was uh, comprised of uh, several commissioners. Uh, there were 22 commissioners. There were 15 voting commissioners. And then uh, to the um, credit of all the people that I worked with, it uh, dragooned uh, volunteers that would help on working groups as we worked through a variety of ideas, issues, uh, things like that. The commission had public hearings across the country to solicit the suggestions that people might make in connection with consumer bankruptcy with the suggestions that they might uh, make to the commission about where uh, they should concentrate. So uh, the commission itself had a broad range of perspectives. It was composed of uh, trustees like me. It was composed of debtors council. It was composed of retired bankruptcy judges. It was um, composed of um, creditors, attorneys, mortgage creditors, auto creditors, um, 
unsecured creditors. There was a broad uh, spectrum of folks that were involved in the commission. And the commendable aspect of this to all the participants was how often the commission all agreed. It was uh, a lot of these issues were dealt with by consensus. Um, for example, um, on the issues related to student loans, it was the one thing that was mentioned at every single public hearing. And so there was a lot of consensus in connection with student loans. But uh, we're going to, you're not going to be stuck with me the whole time. Joining me on this podcast is uh, our two members of the working groups of the uh, commission. Jenny Doling is a, uh, an attorney in Palm Desert, California, and she has been active in uh, the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys. She has spoken um, to the trustees at the NACTT. She has really been um, an active participant, both in the uh, creation and formulation of laws and law. And also joining us is Professor Angela Litwin, who is the Ronald D. Christ Professor of Law at the University of Texas at, um, in Austin. Um, she has focused her studies on bankruptcy and uh, mostly consumer and commercial bankruptcies. And she has a strong empirical background. So as we start this process, it's uh, you'll you'll hear a variety of points of view and from where we're coming. Um, so the first thing we want to talk about is are the uh, debt limits. Um, the the debt limits have been established for a long time. Angie, you want to tell us about the uh, debt limits, where they came from, and what the commission recommended? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you, Hank, and thanks for that nice introduction. Um, so uh, the debt limits, you know, we're talking about the debt limits for eligibility for Chapter 13, right, the cap for secured debt, and then the lower cap for unsecured debt that increase every three years, but only by a little bit. Um, and uh, while I was doing my work on the Chapter 13 committee, I learned the history of the debt limits, which is that in 1978, Chapter 13, as many of you know, was originally only for wage earners. In 1978, um, people wanted to broaden it so that self-employed and small business proprietors could also file. And so the wage earner requirement was shifted to become a regular income requirement. But there were concerns that large proprietors would try to get into Chapter 13. And so the DEM limits were there to keep them out. During the commission's information gathering process, my impression was that many, many people weighed in saying that the limits should be raised. 
And I never heard a single person arguing that they should not be raised or that they should stay the same or be lowered. And so it was clear when we went into the working group that we were going to raise the debt limits. There also seemed to be a strong consensus for getting rid of the distinction between secured and unsecured debt. All that did was um, cause, raise transaction costs of figuring out which debt was secured and unsecured, and there was no good reason for it. But the harder question was how much to raise them to. And there wasn't really a principled number. And what ended up happening is, as Hank mentioned, there were a wide variety of perspectives doing this work, right? Different people had different roles in the consumer bankruptcy system. And it was a negotiation with, um, particularly with a creditor's attorney who, you know, some debtor's attorney had proposed a really high limit, like $5 million. And he said, you know, at a certain point, creditors aren't comfortable with that large of a proprietor being in Chapter 13 because we want the voting protections of Chapter 11, right? We want to make sure we can vote. And so it was just a compromise that ended up being a consensus to put it at $3 million. That was the number that most people felt was high enough and that the creditor's attorneys felt was low enough that would give them protection. So now I'll turn it over to Jenny, who will talk about the practical situation and um, some examples. Yes, thank you, Angie. Thank you, Hank. I appreciate the introductions and the history you've given on this. When we participated in the ABI Consumer Commission together on the subcommittee addressing the debt limits, as Angie mentioned, they were, were 419275 for unsecured debt, and secured debt is $1,257,850. And the recommendation increasing that to $3 million uh, resolves two major implications or problems that the debt limits uh, impose on those consumers who are trying to seek reorganization under Chapter 13. And those two common problems are people with student loan debt and community property issues, if you're in a community property state. The ever-increasing student loan debt problem, the debt bomb we all hear about and all talk about, uh, puts people over the debt limit um, more often than you would think in a Chapter 13 with that debt alone. And it makes them ineligible to reorganize all of their other debts under the Chapter 13, even if they're in an income-based repayment plan or they're on an, an affordable payment plan or if they're in forbearance, that debt still excludes them from reorganizing under a Chapter 13 if it exceeds the unsecured debt limit. This will, um, if we get the increase um, as the commission has recommended, that would resolve that issue and allow more people to take advantage of Chapter 13. The other major problem that we have in community property states such as mine, California, is that spouses are liable for both each spouse's debt. So if you've got one spouse, for example, I have two doctors that I rec represent right now, one has $450,000 in student loan debt, and the other, who, the one who needs to reorganize, has about $175,000. Just that debt alone, excluding all other unsecured debt, puts the, the filing spouse out of the reach of filing a Chapter 13 bankruptcy because I have to include the non-filing spouse's 
unsecured debt, their, their student loans. So that's a major problem. We know student loan debt and mortgage debt have risen much faster um, than inflation, and that trend will likely continue. So if we get this debt limit increase in place, that should resolve those issues and allow far more people to qualify under Chapter 13. And I think that resolves or that addresses our Chapter 13 debt limit issue. I want to uh, move on to the next issue we've got because we got um, kind of excited about this. Um, I certainly did. Um, the commission made a recommendation. Uh, and I would, but let me just um, interject here. I would encourage anyone that has any interest in consumer bankruptcy to get a hold of the report. It contains uh, some incredible research and references that um, Bob Lawless, the reporter for the commission, used in these various sections to explain the uh, recommendations made by the commission. So I encourage that. The, um, the reserve fund uh, was an interesting idea. The, uh, <clears throat> the experience that I've had in 40 years of being a trustee is that uh, virtually every debtor has some issue that happens during the pendency of their case. Uh, they may experience a um, an auto accident. They may lose the transmission on the car. Their water heater may explode or leak. And as you know, that studies have been done by the Federal Reserve that indicates that the average American does not have uh, enough funds held in reserve to handle a $400 emergency. And this, this is, um, it, it spells disaster for a lot of people, but particularly for people that are dedicating all of their projected disposable income to repay creditors in a Chapter 13 plan. So we began to look around as to what people were doing in connection with um, these emergencies. And by and large, the most part uh, across the country, debtors were either just dropping their case, just not doing, just giving it up, uh, or they were modifying their plan to suspend payments. And usually that resulted in a substantial reduction in distribution of creditors. And why was this necessary? It was necessary because of these emergencies, these, these fun things that happen. So in our research, as we were looking through this, we noted that debtors receive or are obligated to receive a, uh, <clears throat> a 10 a class in personal financial management. And this is governed by the United States trustee. They have to certify that this is a valid uh, curriculum for this uh, two, and a, two and a half hour program, and that it covers the things that they want to see covered. 
And one of the things that is there in every single financial workshop curriculum that we can see, including the United States trustees dictates, was the fact that debtors should be encouraged, actually everybody should be encouraged, borrowers and debtors, to establish an emergency fund where they could get over that $400 problem and still have it not affect their lives. They'll be able to make the mortgage payment or make the rent payment, pay the car payment. But if something happens, they have something to fall back on. So we looked around and there were at least two districts in the United States that we could find that did this sort of recognize this problem and came up with a solution. And probably the biggest program is in the Southern District of Texas. And here, debtors propose to pay a portion of their payments into a reserve fund that is held by the trustee and through a negative notice process could access those funds to cover these unexpected, unanticipated emergencies. So um, also the, the District of Maine does the same sort of thing. Um, so when we looked at that, um, we thought it might be a good idea to be able to do that. Uh, Angie, what do you, what, what does the academic world think about the reserve fund and the emergency fund? Yeah, the academic research on Chapter 13 has found in study after study after study that the majority of debtors who confirm plans are unable to complete them, right? And of course, we don't know the reasons for that, but the one study that looked at why people were dropping out of Chapter 13 and whether they'd met their goals found that two-thirds of people who ended up leaving Chapter 13 before making all their payments did not, in fact, meet their bankruptcy goals. And so from an academic perspective, looking at all this research, people are concerned about the effectiveness of Chapter 13. Is it really possible for people to make it through? And when you step back and look at it, requiring financially distressed individuals to put aside 100% of their disposable income for usually for five years is just not feasible, right? Because as Hank said, there's always emergencies and it's not a coincidence, right? People who are financially struggling have worse cars that are more likely to break down. They have poor health insurance that's likely to lead to major deductibles and um, co-pays. Um, and so from the perspective of people sort of looking at Chapter 13 from its um, studying it, you know, from a, from a research perspective, um, it seems obvious that something needs to change in order to give people a better chance to get through their plan. And the reserve fund seems like an ideal way to do it. We looked at um, a number of options. And uh, so some of the things we looked at was that um, the population, and I don't want to overgeneralize, the population tends to be economically fragile. They, uh, they may be uh, uh, transitory. They may be in uh, occupations that are 
the part of a gig economy, they may have to supplement their income some way because they're just barely hanging on. But nonetheless, they choose to go into Chapter 13, maybe to save a house or save a car. So one of the things that we looked at was how can we help these people? And um, what do you think, Jenny? I think it's a, an absolute necessity in Chapter 13. I have filed thousands of them in 2008 to 2012. I had 350 open Chapter 13 cases from my little practice in Southern California. Um, the size of the recommended emergency fund, the basic rule of thumb, is to put away at least three to six months worth of expenses. Every financial planner will tell you that. Any, you know, any kind of budgeting um, program you look at will recommend that. Yet the bankruptcy code actually prevents that kind of savings. And under Chapter 13, a debtor must normally commit all of his or her disposable uh, monthly income to the plan payments. The emergency fund, if, if enacted, could be a line item on Schedule J and contemplated in the means test as a set percentage of the debtor's income. Uh, it could be a set amount that a debtor um, could reach. And this would allow the debtor to meet, also meet good faith requirements under 1325, if you think about it. It increases the possibility of uh, success or the probability of success under um, the plan and the debtor completing that plan. And that's a benefit to both the debtors and the creditors. Uh, the emergency fund, like you mentioned, Hank, could be used for car repairs, home repairs, a medical condition that may result in a temporary loss of income. Like Frank, uh, like Hank mentioned, many of our debtors are in fragile situations where they don't have uh, sick benefits, they don't have health insurance coverage. So if they have to take money out of their regular paycheck to go spend $150 on an urgent care visit, that's going to make it really impossible to make their plan payment, especially if their plan payment is $150. So giving that emergency savings, I think, goes to the benefit of everybody. It's practical. It could be easily implemented. And as you mentioned, Hank, the Southern District of Texas is already, uh, has already implemented this. Do, do you see many creditors objecting to this? We frankly don't because the, the um, creditors know that the, the uh, if, the, if this kind of thing, it's right now in most places, like I said, in the, in the form of a suspension of payments in the plan. So instead of getting their regular payments, the, more, the creditors are going to get shorted, and then that creates a problem. So how, how did the, the uh, commission address this? Well, they said, look, Let's talk first about the below median income debtor. And the below median income debtor uh, has to contribute as their disposable income all funds that are not reasonably necessary for the maintenance and support of the debtor or the dependents of the debtor. All we need to do is recognize what every one of these uh, financial management uh, providers is telling us, and that is, this is reasonable and this is necessary. And if that's the case, 
for the below median income debtor, this is not a problem. This is just adding it to uh, to the budget and making sure that it's a reasonable amount. And they have an answer for that. For the above median income debtor, it's a little more problematic because what's reasonable and necessary has been defined by Congress, making reference to the IRS standards and things like that. Um, in this situation, the commission still felt that it was worthwhile for uh, this to be recognized and to allow it. Now, what happens at the end, end of the case? And, and how much are you going to contribute to, the, to this fund? The first thing we dealt with was, should there be a max? Should there be a top? And the commission felt that one month of expenses on Schedule J uh, was the appropriate max. So a debtor could contribute up to that amount to this fund. Remembering that the contributions or participation in this emergency fund program is totally voluntary. Debtors can do it or can choose not to do it. And if they need it through a negative notice, which just means I want it, and if nobody objects within 14 days, you get it uh, to use for whatever you need, the leaky roof, the uh, transmission, whatever. Uh, for the above median income debtor, it's a little more difficult. And that is because of the definition of what is reasonable and necessary. We still felt that we should ask Congress to make a recognition of the fact that uh, this savings fund, this emergency fund, limited to the one month of, of disbursements, and as has as been said already, that's not really what they're recommending. They're recommending three months of expenses in an emergency fund. But the commission suggested one month. And if you draw down on that one month, you can replenish it um, so that it, you wind up contributing more, but you only have one month, one month's expenses at a time. So how do you do this? How does it effectively work? Well, when you put your plan together, when Jenny, you put the plan together, you're going to say, I've got an, uh, an item here that I'm going to put on my plan. And I'm paying so much for the car and so much for the house and so much for the big screen TV. I'm going to have so much going to my emergency fund. And in that case, the, de the debtor picks this number. It may be five bucks uh, a month or it may be larger as long as the total amount of the fund doesn't exceed Schedule J's total. And then when you need it, you've got it to draw on. Another issue that happened is what happens at the end of the case for that lucky and fortuitous debtor that does not have to invade that fund. Well, um, for a below median income debtor, those are the debtor's funds. They're not committed to the, um, to the creditors. They're not part of the 
payments that are made to creditors. And as a consequence, when the case closes, the trustee would take those funds and return them to the debtor. For the above median income debtor, again, it's a little more problematic. We decided uh, as a commission that those funds would be held by the trustee. And if there were funds left over, then the amount of those funds that was not uh, part of the expenses as defined by the means test, because that's not the uh, definition, then that would go back to the debtor. But if the debtor had funds that were put into this fund that were taken from the disposable income, then uh, the debtors, um, the, the creditors would get that, the unsecured creditors would get that. So the, it, it creates some, um, uh, some additional work for the trustees, but it is, how, uh, however, geared towards making these work and giving a debtor truly a fresh start. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. Uh, I also think that there's something we need to mention for a practicality purpose is the benefit that the debtor has in being able to use these emergency funds through the negative notice um, process. Usually when a debtor is unable to meet an emergency expense, you have a debtor that has a trustee's motion to dismiss that needs to be defended against and then a motion to modify and all of that cost. You know, they have an attorney. We have to do the work on that. And those added attorney fees also hinder the process. So having it be a simple negative notice thing, that will reduce the attorney fees that the debtor also incurs. And that is a good, a good point because the program that's been incorporated in Maine um, tends to use the funds at the end of the case for the purpose of providing the compensation to the attorney for winding up the case. That may be the DSO uh, certificate, it may be the, the notice of I'm not an Enron crook, and, um, and that just costs, and that's what um, that's what may take it, Angie. The world of Enron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a great idea. One thing I wanted to highlight um, is that yes, it seems like this should be considered a reasonably inne reasonably necessary expense under the code, but that's going to vary from district to district. I think Jenny, you had discussed that there might be issues in your district, and that a legislative fix would be necessary. Yeah, we need a statutory fix. I think um, dealing with this on a district to district basis is going to leave a lot of districts out of uh, taking advantage of this benefit for their debtors. In, in our district, I had a Chapter 13 trustee object to my plan because the debtor did not propose an emergency fund. That wasn't the, the real basis for the objection. But all the case law that I found on it said they absolutely can't even propose a uh, an emergency fund and so we argued that okay we'll we'll amend the budget and we'll put that in and they said no we, we would object to that so it, i think we absolutely have to have a statutory change so that all debtors across the country could take advantage of the emergency fund 
sounds like you have to need a statutory change to deal with the trustees. That would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> right. It will work in some places, but it won't work in other places. Right. So without the statutory right. change. And like like we said, uh, the Southern District of Texas has done this. I'm anticipating putting this into effect in the Middle District of Tennessee. Actually, the oh, issues great. that I'm facing are mostly dealing with how do I get the computer that I do disbursements with mm -hmm. to recognize the fact that these funds cannot be invaded by, by until um, until there's a uh, a drawdown by the debtor or at the end of the case. So that's it's just an issue. We can fix that. I think this conversation is very timely dealing with the pandemic crisis right now. Uh, we have a lot of debtors and we're processing a lot of motions to modify because they've had a, an obvious drop in income. I mean, we, we have 6.6 .6 million uh, new unemployment claims and that's impacting our chapter 13 debtors right now. And if they had some kind of emergency fund, we might have a little more flexibility. They would have the, the uh, ability to bridge from the time they lose their job till the time they start getting their uh, benefits. Right. And that, you're exactly, exactly. You're exactly right. This, uh, when, when the commission first discussed this, it was the water heater and the, and the transmission but now we're dealing with people who are sheltered at home and, and lost their jobs and cannot right. cannot make ends meet at all. Uh, we have processed in the middle district about 500 applications to suspend payments um, wow. so far, and it's it's you know what we're trying to do is figure out a way for them to be able to expedite, make it easier, the process of uh, modifying their plan. And of course, the CARES Act helped a little bit by um, by extending those plans uh, up to seven years if you've been affected by the virus. So um, that's something we'll have to get used to. You know, I, I believe some of my colleagues don't count past 60, so that's going to be hard. Um, but there are uh, there are issues that we have to deal with. Uh, for example, and this was another recommendation of the commission, there are some courts that have um, put a hard and fast rule on that 60-month length. And if something happens or if claims come in differently or whatever, and the debtor hits that 60th month, and that only needs a couple more months of payments and they, they can be done and get a discharge. Some of these courts are actually dismissing these cases. And um, that uh, the commission thought that was not the way Congress would want this to work. One of the things that, that by relaxing it, so out of the, the classic KLAS case, that um, you know, it's kind of like telling the courts to just chill for a minute and we'll just see where we are. And um, I've, as a trustee, I've avoided throwing that to the judge because I'll, I'll agree to continue a matter 
and it may continue until they're paid out. So that just that avoids the judge having to make a tough decision on the on the modification over sixteen months. So you know that's that's an aspect of this. Uh, one of the things that we discussed at the commission at the commission level was we really want to give people a chance to succeed. As um, as Angie mentioned, the failure rate on these chapter 13s is very large. And in, but a lot of times they're not uh, abandoning bankruptcy, they're just filing again. So instead of having a five-year plan, they get a 10-year plan because they do the first one and the case gets dismissed and they do another one. And so they essentially have 10 years of protection under the uh, automatic stay. If we have this in place, it may well reduce the amount of recidivism because we've got, we can leave debtors with an emergency fund at the end of the case. That's the funds that are on hand in this reserve fund to, um, to be able to start out and get really, really get a fresh start. And maybe finish their plan. I don't know. Angie, what do you think? Well, I'd say one thing is with the pandemic crisis, it seems like we'd be better off going up to the recommendation of your average financial planner, which is a cushion of three to six months, right? Because we don't know when this is going to end and when people will be able to go back to work again. Um, so the one month the commission recommended under these circumstances might no longer be sufficient. I don't disagree. I lost that argument, but that was, um, right. but that was, uh, uh, it is what, what we got, what we're encouraging people to do, the people who are listening to the podcast here, is to reach out and advocate for these two things. One thing we're advocating for is changing the debt limits for chapter 13. And the other is to allow the creation of this emergency fund in the hands of a trustee, because that means it's bonded, it is, and so protected. And it's not easy for a debtor just to spend it, just to decide I'm going to go out and spend my emergency fund uh, and have a good time. Of course, every place is closed now, so I'm not sure that. Um, there's any place for people to go, but um, but that was the idea, and I think that if we can get this to work, and if we get people behind it, this is something that could improve the completion rate in chapter 13 cases, and help people from having to come back. That's that's absolutely really agree. Strange. Yes, yes, definitely agreed. So um, the. Uh, the issues that we dealt with here call for participation. And the participation we're asking is that if you have an interest in any of these recommendations, either the ones we've discussed or the ones that uh, the commission report covers, and there's a lot of very interesting recommendations, um, we encourage you to get involved to uh, to participate in ABI and the activities of ABI 
and to uh, reach out to the policymakers, whether that's your congressman, your senator, your mayor, whatever, to uh, try and advocate for uh, allowing these kind of changes to help people. Because remember, we're not talking about a whole revamp of the bankruptcy code. What we're talking about is uh, is tweaks that just fit within the existing framework. So I want to um, thank thank the two of you and thank everybody who's listening here for uh, joining us on this discussion. Uh, I want to thank you for um, for the participation that you have or the interest that you've shown by just participating and listening. And uh, we are encouraging you to reach out, make your voice heard. You are the bankruptcy professionals of uh, that, that we're trying to deal with, and your voice matters. So thank you. And thank you, Hank, for moderating this terrific session. Yes, thank you. I enjoyed participating. Yeah.